you'll turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 to 20. This will be our text this Lord's Day. If you've been with us, you know that we are walking through the book of Exodus. And we now come to a point where God has brought nine plagues upon the Egyptians and upon Pharaoh. And He's now warned them of the tenth plague that's coming. Moses has delivered uh, his last message to Pharaoh. And he's letting him know that the death of the firstborn is coming now to Egypt. God will send the destroyer who will enter into these homes and will take the life of the firstborn. But he's given a means of salvation to the people. And so we looked last week at the Passover meal and, and the importance of the Passover. How that lamb was to be chosen as one that was without spot or blemish. And it was to be sacrificed and a meal was to be had. And the blood of that lamb was to be put on the lintel and on the doorpost. And that blood would cover that home so that the Lord would pass over that home. And if He passed over, then the destroyer would not go in and take the life of the firstborn. And we talked about how the wages of sin is death and how because of sin, uh, the Egyptians and the Hebrews deserve death. But God provides this means of salvation for the Hebrews if they will obey His Word. But He also is giving them with the Passover a reminder, something that they would celebrate for generations to come that would remind them of what He had done, but would also point them forward to what He was going to do. Because ultimately, as we discussed last week, that Passover celebration points towards the true, perfect Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ. And that's why John, as he sees Jesus coming, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that, that meal, that festivity, everything pointed towards Jesus. But God would give another reminder to His people, and that's what we're going to read about now in Exodus chapter 12. Because after the Passover celebration, for the next seven days, they would have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And so we're going to read about that uh, out of reverence for God's Word. If you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us. And this is the instruction God gives to Moses to give to the people, and ultimately it is His Word for us today. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. If you would, pray with me. 
Father, as we come to this text today, it can easily sound like a repetitive instruction. In so many ways in these verses, it seems you're telling Moses to tell the people what to eat and what not to eat over and over again. And like all repetition, Lord, if we're not careful, it can become redundant and we can almost become callous to it and not even hear what it is you're saying. And then as we consider this feast being something somewhat foreign to most of us in this room, it's easy for us just to glaze over this. Lord, I pray you would help us today not to do that. That you would help us to dig a bit deeper into this word and to learn from it, to grow from it. And ultimately, Lord, that you would point us towards the gospel through it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. From the looks of things, there's still some folks uh, on fall break. This is that time of year uh, when schools get a little bit of a break, and so sometimes families will go different places. Uh, We stayed at home this year, but last year we took a a trip we had been talking about taking for years. We took the kids to Washington, D.C., Uh, That was my first trip. I'd never been before, but for those of you who've been to D.C., you know uh, there's a lot of Smithsonian's and museums, a tremendous amount of walking. uh, There's a a lot of things to take in. Uh, But now looking back on it a year later and remembering what I saw, that the day that really struck me the most, the one that I've thought about the most since then, uh, was the day that we as a family went to see the memorials and the monuments. If you've been there, you know kind of the landscape. You can start out there at the Washington Monument, and as you're there, you can look over and see at the distance the White House, and as you cross the lawn, you come to the World War II Memorial. That memorial has recognition for each of the states where soldiers who were from that state died there in World War II. There's a gold star, each gold star representing 100 people who gave their lives in World War II. Uh, then from there you can continue to walk and there's the, uh, the reflection pond to your left and there's uh, a garden to your right and as you continue, uh, then you come to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Uh, there etched on that wall uh, is not just uh, stars or uh, the recognition of hundreds of people, but it's the individual names uh, of thousands who died during Vietnam. Uh, as we walked through these things, it was very... Uh, important and significant for us because it was an opportunity to to look at these monuments and these memorials and to talk to our kids about what they represented. They have not grown up during World War II and Vietnam. We were able to show them and tell them this is what these things were, this is what they represent, And, and this memorial is a reminder to us that will serve not just for our generation but to future generations of the cost of freedom of people who gave their lives in these conflicts, it reminds us of these things. That's what memorials and monuments do. They stand as perpetual reminders for us. As we come to this point in Exodus, God is giving His people a memorial. He is giving them a reminder because He knows that they, like us today, they would be prone to forget things. You think of all that God had done now in Exodus, how He had brought these miraculous plagues, how He moved in miraculous ways, how He was going to deliver His people from hundreds of years of slavery and take them to the land of promise. Yet in doing those things, God knows His people will easily forget what He has done. 
And so as we come to this point in the text today, we now come to a a second memorial. Really, part two of a larger celebration. We looked at the Passover last week. Now we come to this feast of unleavened bread that would last for seven days. And it's very significant because it would serve as a reminder to the people of what God had done. And that's the first point there in your outline. The unleavened bread was a consistent reminder for God's people. Verse 14, God says to Moses, this day shall be for you a memorial day. That phrase in the Hebrew means a day of remembrance. We think of memorial day, we probably think of something different, don't we? If I'd asked you as you were coming in today to to tell me what comes to mind when I say memorial day, and you would think, of course, of the, the celebration we have here in the States. We have that in May. Right now, we're wrapping the summer up. We're getting ready for winter. But as the winter comes, we'll all be longing for the summer. And Memorial Day is kind of this celebration around that time of year that summer's finally coming. But of course, Memorial Day is for us supposed to be a day of remembrance also. It's a day that we're to remember those who have died serving in our nation's armed forces. But think about how we celebrate that. Think about what we do on Memorial Day. I would imagine for many of us, Memorial Day uh, usually has something to do with having a day off. A lot of time it's a day to get out there and work in your yard, work on your house. And then a lot of times we'll do what? We'll, we'll have a Memorial Day cookout. And we'll have food and we'll get out the grill and we'll grill some steaks or burgers or hot dogs. But, but as we grill those things, there's really absolutely no connection between the meal we are eating and what it is that day is set aside for. And so it's very easy for us in our Memorial Day celebrations to have absolutely no idea what Memorial Day is about. And so you could go right now and take a survey of any hundred random group of people and you would probably find, sadly, that many of them couldn't tell you why we have a Memorial Day. Because the things we do on that day don't remind us of what that day is for. When we come to the feast of unleavened bread we come to something radically different because what god is doing here is he's saying i want you to have a feast i want you to have a meal but this feast this meal will be the reminder for you as you are eating these things as you are preparing these things this is going to remind you of why you have set aside this week and that reminder is going to center around the bread without leaven the unleavened bread as God gives this instruction throughout the passage that we read over and over and over again, the people were to set aside that week bread without leaven. Leaven essentially was a bit of dough kept over from the unbaked bread from the day before that had already risen, it had fermented, it had the yeast in it. We would refer to yeast now instead of leaven, but that, that leaven then, they would take that leaven lump of bread and they would combine it with their bread the next day. And then they would allow that dough to rise and they would cook that dough. And then day after day, they would take that fermented dough before they cooked it, take a piece of it out, and that would put the leaven in the bread for the next day. And so God here says very specifically, I don't want you to put leaven in this bread. I want you to have unleavened bread. And then he tells them why. He tells them this is symbolic of their flight from Egypt. Because when they left Egypt, they left so quickly They didn't have enough time for the dough to rise. So, for those of you in this room who make your own bread, 
you have to give it time to rise. For others of us in this room who go to Dollar General, we don't know anything about this. We just walk in the store, we hope there's still bread left, and as there is, we look at the date, maybe, and then we buy the bread and we take it home and we eat the bread. But I think we all understand there's a process to make this bread. And in that process, that yeast, uh, that rising agent, has to be activated within that mixture, and it has to have time to rise. And so God principally says to his people, I want you to have this feast of unleavened bread to remind you there was a day when I delivered you out of your slavery, out of your calamity, out of your suffering, and there wasn't even enough time for the dough to rise, I quickly delivered you and snatched you out of that. This was to remind them of the saving work of God. It's hinted at throughout Exodus chapter 12. We saw it in verse 11 where God tells the Israelites they are to eat the Passover meal in haste. And we see it more explicitly as we continue in chapter 12 in verse 39, where it says, And they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. For they had prepared, they had not prepared any provisions for themselves. And so I hope you see here what God is doing through the Passover meal and through the Feast of Unleavened Bread is He's giving these reminders to His people. So this is going to serve very differently than the meals we have so often on our Memorial Day or Labor Day or Fourth of July. These are meals that teach a lesson. That Passover meal would teach them that God would ultimately provide the Passover lamb who would be the sacrifice for their sin. That, that God was saving them from Egypt, and one day God would save His people from their sin. The unleavened bread would remind them that God did that quickly and delivered them with haste, that it was not of their own doing, it was completely a work of God. And so over and over again, these annual festivals will take place as reminders for God's people that He was the one who was saving them. And friends, they needed these reminders because they, like us, may have been tempted to think that they had something to do with being saved in the first place. And so as time would go on, and God would deliver them out of Egypt, He would take them towards the promised land, and they would sit around their tables at night, and as time would go on, they were likely tempted in their conversations to start attributing what had happened to themselves. Kids, let me tell you about back when we were in slavery and in Egypt and we were there for so long, but we finally got sick and tired of it and we got together and we decided we're not going to take this anymore. And we just marched ourselves right out of Egypt. They might be tempted to talk about how, yeah, I got to the, the sea and we weren't sure what was going to happen, but then the sea opened up and then, man, your, your Uncle Rufus, Rufus was so bold and he was so brave, he just walked through that water and then we all saw Rufus and his bravery and we just walked right behind him and we got across to the other side and then, what you know, the waters just swallowed up Pharaoh and all those Egyptians. And all the while, they would be tempted to attribute these things to their strength and their bravery and their doing. And God gives them this meal to remind them they didn't do anything. He was the one who saved them. He was the one who ultimately would provide the Passover lamb. He was the one doing this work. 
And friends, we need that reminder today as well. Because for many of us, we can look back on a day and a time when we walked this aisle or walked another aisle or, or sat at a table with our parent or grandparent or a pastor or someone and, and the scripture was opened up and we, we learned the truth of the gospel. We learned about how, how we were indeed sinners. How since the fall in the garden, sin has plagued man and the wages of sin is death. And we learned at one point how that death then separates us eternally from God. And we learned how God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners and deserving that death, Christ died for us on the cross. And we learned that it wasn't enough to know that. We had to act on it and how God calls us to confess Christ as Lord. And, and in that moment when we, when we did that, we saw a picture of the, the grace and the mercy and the love of God towards us. But we too are tempted over time to start attributing that work more and more to ourselves. And so we're tempted to think, I did this. We're tempted to think, I can do this. We're tempted to think that somehow, some way, we're going to stand before God and God's going to measure how good we were and how hard we tried. If you want to see how this plays out, you just go to any funeral. And just about every funeral I've been to, along the way, somebody will come up to me and they'll say, well, Pastor, if anybody's in heaven, it's Aunt so-and-so there. Because Aunt so-and-so, I tell you, she was at the church every time the doors were open and I never met a more loving person and I never met a more gracious person. In fact, it was her that did this and this for me. If anybody deserves to be in heaven, it's Aunt so-and-so. I don't think that's the time for me to get up in the pulpit and start preaching. But if it was, I would say, friend, your aunt so-and-so has done nothing but build up the embers that she deserves to burn over top of for an eternity in hell. That would not play well at a funeral. It doesn't play well here. Do you see the truth of it? It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how much you try. The Scripture is very clear to us that we are not saved because we are such good people. Now, good works should follow our salvation. We are saved, the Scripture says, in order to do good things. But don't think for a second that you're saved because you did good things. If you get that order confused, that has an eternal consequence. Well, listen to what the Scripture says. Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. So we don't do good things in order to earn favor with God. We do good things because Christ died for us and we have been saved in order to do good things. Your works do not produce your faith. But your faith should produce good works. 
And if you get that inverted, you will have a frustrating and miserable life of trying your hardest to perform only to find that your best efforts come up way short. There's a standard in the Scripture and it is perfection. Do any of us think we've been perfect? Does anybody even want to try to plead that they've been close to perfect? No. The Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so once we respond to that Gospel, well then good works will flow and then then confidence can flow. We can rest securely in the hands of God. We can know that we're saved. Just as we did nothing to earn it, we can do nothing to unearn it. Just as we did not save ourselves, we cannot lose ourselves. It is a work of God. And that's why the Scripture says clearly, Jesus says, you're in my hand, you're in the Father's hand, no one can snatch you out of our hand. He goes on in 1 John to say this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He says he writes these things to those of us who believe in the name of the Son of God so that we may know that we have eternal life. These are the reminders God gives us throughout His Word. This is the reminder that He is giving His people through this feast. That they have done nothing to save themselves. They can do nothing to save themselves. That He did this work. He snatched them out of their slavery. But there's more to it than that. Point two, the unleavened bread taught the importance of sanctification. Sanctification. Now that's a a big theological word we talk about. Essentially what it means is this. It is growing in holiness. Sanctification means growing in holiness. Sanctification means over time as a Christian, you look less and less like your old self and you become more and more like Jesus. And we might refer to this as spiritual growth or or growth in the Christian life. To be sanctified means we are growing in holiness. And to grow in holiness, friends, we need to recognize sin in our life and we need to flee from sin in our life. And that's one of the lessons that I believe God was teaching His people through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice what He tells Moses to tell the people. Over and over again here. Verse 15. Remove all the leaven from your houses. Now again, leaven would have been that rising agent. He says, go in and clean everything out. And he even says to them, if you don't do that, if you don't get it all out, if someone doesn't get all the leaven out of their house, then you just cut them off from Israel. And he goes on in verse 19 to say, again, even a sojourner who comes in, if they don't remove the leaven from their house during these seven days, you just cut them off from the congregation. Think for a moment at how difficult a task this would have been. I live in a home that has smooth countertops. We have 18,000 bottles of cleaning agents in our house. We've got 14 million rolls of paper towels. And I've got four kids just dying to clean my kitchen at any moment. Maybe part of that's not true. But... Go with me here. 
And so we can walk in that house and I can say, okay, kids, before we do this, this, and this, we got to clean the kitchen. And we can get out those bottles and we can spray them and we can wipe it down and wipe it down and scrub it and clean it. And I can look at it and say, well, looks good now. Then take a closer look. Well, actually, there's something. Well, now you missed this. Well, man, I, that was like last year. I don't know where that came from. Yeah. And you start looking, and you're like, man, get in every nook and every corner. And that's in a home with a, with a smooth countertop. Well, it reminds you that the homes that the Hebrews lived in in Egypt, they, these structures built out of stick and mud, wood and clay, and they're, 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 the floors of them are just clean dirt. <laughs> That the counters of them are, are stone and rock and, and they're not the sanitary environment that we might be used to in a kitchen. And God says, I want you to go in there and get every bit of leaven out of it. It's hard enough to clean my kitchen. Can you imagine what that would have been for an ancient Hebrew to go in there and try to clean every nook and cranny to make sure that there's no leaven left here? It wouldn't be done casually. It would be done very seriously and it would take a great amount of time. Why is God asking His people to do that? What God is doing and what we see throughout the Scriptures, God uses leaven as a picture of sin. And why He calls them to use unleavened bread is that it's symbolizing holiness. And so what God is doing here with His people is He's saying, I want you to be serious about sin, and I want you to go in, and I want you to clean this out. What we see taking place here is that God was taking His people out of Egypt, but He was equally concerned that He wanted Egypt out of His people. And the temptation for God's people, after living for hundreds of years in Egypt, would have been to leave Egypt but to take Egypt with them. And that would be so easy to do. I mean, you think about our own culture, our church, churches in this part, churches in this country even. That there are some things ingrained in you and me that have absolutely nothing to do with the Word of God. Nothing. Things that if you were to bring up now and you want to argue about them, there, there's nothing in the Bible about them, but you hold them dearly and closely to yourself. And I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying you, you hold them and you treasure them because it's the culture you grew up in. And sometimes you'll, you'll die on hills in arguments over these things that aren't really even biblical, but you're just holding so tightly to them because culturally they're just ingrained in you. What God has seen in His people, I'm sure at this point, is that culturally they've, they've observed and they've taken on a lot of Egypt. And we've talked about this already. We'll see in Exodus they'll get to a point where, where the people will kind of wander and waver when Moses is up on the mountaintop with God and they're tired of waiting for Moses and they'll collect their gold and they'll melt it down they'll make a cow. And you may have wondered, well, why a golden cow? Well, because that's exactly what they had in Egypt. And that was one of the, the idols and the images that the Egyptians would have that they would make sacrifices to. They would worship. It represented one of the false gods of Egypt. 
And so God knows that his people have been ingrained with this pagan thought, and he wants to get that out of them. So as he's pulling them out of Egypt, he wants Egypt out of his people, and so he uses this feast as a reminder to them that he takes sin very seriously and that they are called to be holy and they are called to be separate. And friends, that carries all the way over into the New Testament. Notice what Paul writes about the leaven in 1 Corinthians 5. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So he's not just talking about bread here, he's talking about us. But then he equates it to this festival. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, the, the festival of the unleavened bread. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so Paul says here real clearly that leaven represents malice and evil and wickedness and sin, and this unleavened bread represents sincerity and truth and righteousness. Jesus, of course, taught this same thing in Matthew 16. The disciples come to Jesus. It's rather humorous when you read it, and they... They say to Jesus, we don't have any bread. And Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now contextually, what the disciples were probably thinking at that point is, well, we know we need some leaven, but I don't know if we're going to the Pharisees or Sadducees to get it. You know, they're, they're thinking about physical leaven to then get and put into uh, the dough and, and the bread to rise and make bread. And Jesus, no, 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 no. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But be careful that you don't take their teaching and ingrain it into what I'm teaching. But be careful, Jesus is telling them, that you don't take the, the, the legalism and the hypocrisy and then integrate that into what I'm teaching you about the kingdom. Because if you do that, you're taking that which is old and you're ingraining it into what is new and you're going to have a big mess. God long before had given them the illustration of this at this feast and helping them to understand the importance of growing in holiness, the importance of sanctification. And friends, that's a lesson we still need to learn today because God is concerned about our holiness as well. In 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Let me ask you a question. When you look at your Christian life and you consider when you got saved and responded to the gospel, when you first understand that you understood you were indeed a sinner and repented and placed your faith in Jesus, when you consider your life as a Christian, however long that's been, and you look at where you are now, that do you see consistent growth in your life? Or do you see what I think many experience, which is more of a roller coaster ride? <laughs> you know? We get excited about the Lord. Maybe it's a, a sermon, a book, something we read in the Scripture, something's going on in our life, a conference, whatever it might be. And we're just, we're just excited about the Lord. And then maybe it's a few months, a few weeks, a few days, a few hours, and we just tank it right down at the bottom. And then we feel bad. Oh, I don't I mean I can't believe I'm here. I shouldn't have done this. I just got I gotta get back on track. I gotta get back to church. And so then we vow, oh, I'm not gonna do that anymore, and I'm gonna start doing this. And and then that thing starts going back up, and we kind of get back up to this this top part. Oh yeah, I love Jesus, and everything's good, everything's going great, and then 
go right back down. And then it's just this up and down and up and down and up and down. Friends, I think God has provided for us something better. And what I mean by that is not that the Christian life looks like this perfect line moving upward in sanctification. It might be up and down, but it keeps going up. But in order to do that, we need to recognize that God has given us tools for Christian growth. God has not said to us, well, now that you're saved, just go figure this out on your own. God has equipped us. He's given us resources to grow as a believer. And I'll give you an illustration. In the first service, I said picture a chair. Then I realized there was a chair. So you don't have to picture it. Here it is. See the chair. So this chair is held up by what? Legs. You are so much smarter than the first service. It took them like 40 seconds to get there. I'm going to see if you can get this one. How many legs are on this chair? Man, y'all are, this is good. Y'all are with me now. So there's four legs on this chair. So let's picture for a second that this chair represents resources that God has given us to grow in the Christian life. So let's picture this first leg is the Word of God. God has given us His Word to learn from. God has spoken to us through His Word. How often do we say, I wish God would just tell me something. I wish God would just speak to me. And yet at the same time, often He has spoken about that very thing, but we just don't pick it up. God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Throughout His Word, beginning to end. It all points to Jesus. It tells us His will. It's very clear. And so we're called as believers, if we want to grow and not go up and down and up and down, this teaches us. It's an important part of the Christian life. God has spoken through His Word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, He equips us through it. It is inspired by Him. You want to grow in righteousness and grow in your walk with the Lord, you need to be in the Word of God. But it's not just that. He's also called us to respond to Him through prayer. So let's picture one is God's Word. This next leg is prayer. And so God speaks to us through His Word. We speak back to Him through prayer. You guys are awesome this morning. You are on it. We speak to God through prayer. But not just anything. See, we've got to understand that we are to pray in response to His Word. And if we don't pray in response to His Word, then our prayers might be unbiblical. Our prayers might become kind of redundant, memorized prayers that we learned as a kid and we just keep saying, now lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep if I die before I wake. That is terrifying for a child, by the way. If your kid actually listens to that, then they start asking you questions. What do you mean if I die before I wake? What's going to happen to me? Is somebody here? What's it? On and on and on and on. But we tend to memorize these prayers and then we don't even think about it. Or we pray so general. Uh, Lord, I pray for everybody in the world and for good weather. Amen. You know. No, we're to pray according to the Word. Uh, Psalm 1, God says to us, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So we pray, Lord, help me not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Lord, I'm surrounded by wicked counsel. The world's full of wicked counsel. Every time I turn on the news, there's wickedness. Every time I read the paper, there's wickedness. Turn on the radio, there's wickedness. So, Father, help me not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. So we pray in response to His Word. That's two things God has equipped us with to grow in sanctification. But not just that. 
God has given us this body of faith, friends. He's given us the church. You realize most of the time in the New Testament when, when we read you, it's not you meaning each of you, it's you meaning all of us. God has given us the body that we might encourage one another and keep each other accountable and pray for one another and preach the gospel to one another. We need this fellowship of believers. And so that's another leg that helps us to grow as a Christian. So God gives us His Word. We respond through prayer. He gives us fellowship. But then He also gives us this calling. He calls us to take this message of the gospel out to a lost and dying world, to go to the nations. In fact, you may have recognized it here in this passage I read this morning, but even here he's alluding to the sojourners and the neighbors. It's not just a New Testament call to be a light to the nations. That was an Old Testament call as well. We'll see that more as we go through Exodus. But you even see it here as he talks about this feast of unleavened bread. And he gives instruction even for the sojourner, the person who joins up with you along the way. And so growth in the Christian life doesn't just happen. Once we are saved, then we look to the tools and the resources God has given us in order to grow. God's Word, prayer, fellowship, witnessing. Let me ask you a question. If you take one of the legs off this chair, how's that going to work? In first service, Pastor Matt, I was going to pick on John. Matt was sitting there. John, you'll be Matt. Uh, I said, if Pastor Matt sat on this chair and it only had three legs, what would happen? Pastor Matt would fall flat. Wasn't that good? I just came up with that on the spot this morning. And, and, and let's say that I took two legs off of the chair and just kind of held it up and somebody sat down on it. What's going to happen? They're going to fall. And you take three legs off, they're going to fall. And you take four legs off, you don't have a leg to stand on. In the Christian life, in order for us to grow, we need to utilize these tools God has given us. And if we don't, friends, it's like trying to sit on a two-legged chair. It doesn't work out so well. And so perhaps the reason you're struggling this morning to grow in holiness is because you're living an unbalanced Christian life. And God has given us these tools to grow, and it begins with recognizing sin in our life and repenting of that sin. That's the message he is communicating over and over again to his people through the leaven. But it's not just that. He is pointing them towards something. The point three there. The unleavened bread ultimately points to the gospel. The unleavened bread ultimately points to the gospel. See, there's also a frustration here. <laughs> As frustrating as it would be for God's people to try to get every bit of leaven out of their house, it's even more frustrating when God gives them the law and they try to live according to it. Because God, if you, you read the law and you see how specific the law is, you realize very quickly, nobody can live under this burden. And so God says the standard is holiness, and in order for you to live a holy life, you need to follow all these commands... And then as time goes on, the people realize they can't follow all those commands. But then that's the point of it. God is using the law to point them towards what they cannot do. And He gives us the gospel to show us there is something we cannot do either. We cannot save ourselves. 
And all these things he gives them point towards the gospel. We talked about the Passover meal last week and how that lamb pointed towards Jesus. But we also see it here in the unleavened bread. And to show that to you, I want to take you to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And you may have asked the question of yourself already. If God says over and over again that these are to be done every year and they're always to do these things, then, then why don't we do them today? Why don't we have a Passover meal every year at Bloomfield Baptist Church? Why don't we have a feast of unleavened bread at Bloomfield Baptist Church? Why don't we have a week where Pastor Nick and Pastor Matt and Janice and I and whoever else we can get on board go and inspect everybody's house and if you've got yeast in your house, we take you off a membership roll. Why don't we do that? Because friends, these things were pointing us towards something that now we can look back on that's happened. And I'll show you where. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is now going to observe these memorials with the disciples. And so we read in Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, so now we, we know what that is, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus has come to Jerusalem along with all these other Israelites come to Jerusalem because they're there to celebrate the Passover meal and follow that with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These things went together. And so Jesus is still observing this. The disciples are still observing this. This looking back on the reminder of how God had delivered and how God had called them to holiness. And now He, the perfect Lamb of God, He who knew no sin, is going to celebrate this meal with them. And so, he goes on to remind them that the, the time has come, his time is at hand. Of course, they don't fully understand that yet. And he says, I'll keep the Passover at your house. My disciples, he's telling them about how this is going to work out. And then verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So he goes on to point out how one's going to betray. Of course, we all know the betrayer will be Judas. And then as he continues, notice what he says, verse 26. And now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, now I realize to us today, that's a familiar phrase to us. But consider for a moment what that was to Jesus' disciples. You know, in the early church, in the first century, Christians were accused of being cannibals. And they were persecuted, and one of the charges against them was that they were cannibals. And they believed they were cannibals because they heard the Christians talking about eating someone's body. When the disciples are sitting around the table, and Jesus says, Take, eat this bread, this is my body, they probably didn't automatically put all the pieces together. But we can put them together now, can't we? That festival that was celebrated for generation after generation involved bread that was to represent purity. That bread represented holiness. That bread represented bread that did not have leaven, did not have wickedness, did not have unrighteousness, did not have impurity in it. That bread also called the people to live holy lives even though they realized that left to themselves they couldn't live holy lives. And now Jesus takes that bread and says to them, 
I am the one without blemish. I am the one without impurity. And I am the one who can empower you to live a holy life. Because I am the true holy one that all this is pointed towards. And in that moment, he fulfilled fully that feast that God had called his people to up to that point. But it's not just that. You continue on. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Up until that point, when the disciples and others celebrated the Passover meal, the blood reminded them, the lamb, excuse me, reminded them that the lamb's blood covered the homes of their ancestors and that the lamb's blood held back death from that home. And now Jesus takes the cup and says, your focus is no longer on the blood of all those sacrifices. Your focus is now on me and my blood is what will now cover you. My blood will now be on your doorpost. And death will pass over you because of me. And he does all these things in preparation for what? For going to the cross, for dying in their place, and for being resurrected. So these feasts, the Passover, the unleavened bread, they all point to Jesus and they point to the gospel. And so the reason we don't celebrate the Passover and the unleavened bread today is because God has given us a different memorial. And it's a meal that we celebrate. It's the Lord's Supper. And every time we take the cup and we take the bread, we are reminding ourselves and being reminded by others that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I'm placing my hope and my trust fully in Him. And He has not left me. He is returning one day for me. And He has called me to a promised land, a new heaven and a new earth. It is a memorial. It is a time for us to remember what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. And it begins with responding to the gospel. And once we respond, then we grow in sanctification. But friends, again I warn you, do not get those two things confused. Because if you do, you will spend your life trying to earn favor with God. And you will spend your life trying to do enough good works to outweigh your bad. The gospel calls us to recognize that there is no one good, not even one. And I realize by your standard and mine, maybe we look pretty good. But by God's standard of perfection, we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God, the scripture says. We deserve death and separation. But the Passover lamb has died in our place. And we're called to repent and trust in Him. And then once that happens, we can grow in the Christian life because now we have the power source to do it. Otherwise, you will become frustrated trying these things in your own effort. Now, I'll close with this, perhaps a picture that will help. Years ago, a pastor was telling me about how he had bought himself a new lawnmower. His old lawnmower had all kinds of issues and he was excited about this new lawnmower he had and so he took it out in his yard and he said, normally, it would take him you know, 30, 45 minutes to mow his front yard. He said, an hour into it, he still didn't have a third of that yard mowed. As hard as he could push, that mower would go so slow, and he would push it, and he would push it, and he would push it, and just barely could get the thing to move. 
as he was frustrated and probably saying some unkind things to the lawnmower, <laughs> he said he looked across the street and his neighbor's kid was sitting on the front porch just laughing at him. So he finally turned the mower off and went to the kid and said, what, what are you laughing at? That kid didn't say a word to him. He just walked over to his lawnmower. He said, go ahead and start it. And then he flipped the self-propelled switch on it. And once that self-propelled switch was on, zip, zip, zip. Mowed that yard in no time. The power source was there to do what needed to be done. But he was trying so hard in his own effort. And he was accomplishing little to nothing. And friends, that is such a picture of the Christian life. You, you can try your hardest to be a good person. You can try your hardest to, to measure up and for your good to outweigh your bad. But what the Gospel says to us is what we need to do is recognize our sin and repent and turn to Christ. And then He gives us the power source. He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to read the Word and to pray and to fellowship and to tell others about Christ. And so this morning, I want us to consider these things as we think about the Gospel, how God gave the Passover as a reminder of salvation, and He gave unleavened bread as a reminder of sanctification, and how we're to celebrate these things in the life of the church. And so in a moment, we're going to give an opportunity for you to respond. And I hope that as part of that response, all of us will sing. And as we sing, we'll consider the words we're singing. And we're going to sing about Christ. And we're going to sing about the Gospel, but not just the saving work that God has done, but then in response to that saving work, what He has called us to do. And we will end our singing with these words. Now Lord, I would be Yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow Your commands could never come from me. Oh Father, use my ransom life in any way You choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Church, if you would stand together with me as I pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that our only boast would be you. And that we would recognize that our works cannot save us, but you have called us to good works in response to our salvation. And so Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who's confused about that. I pray for anybody who's confused about the Gospel. For anyone who's still yet to repent, who's still trusting in their good works. Lord, I pray that You, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, would bring them to conviction and to repentance and to faith. For others, Lord, who perhaps as Christians are, are struggling in their Christian life, are, are experiencing that roller coaster of up and down. Lord, I pray that they would repent and they would trust in You, and they would use the, the tools You have given us, that they would dig into Your Word and, and respond to that Word in faith and prayer and surround themselves with the body of Christ and tell those outside of the body about Christ and that through that, Lord, You would grow them and grow us together. And Lord, as we consider these things, if there's any you're calling to confess Christ. I pray that they would make that public today. If there's any who you're calling to join this fellowship of believers, I pray they would come forward and let us know that. If there's somebody who just needs prayer, Lord, I pray that they would come so that we might pray for them or pray there where they are. But I pray, Lord, that you would remind us all of the gospel and the call to walk by faith as we sing this.
In Christ's name we pray. Amen.